All-star closer, Kenley Jansen, we have a question. What's the best podcast of all time? Baseball isn't boring, baby. I'm Rob Bradford, and every single day I'm sitting down with the biggest names to show you this great game is the greatest game. It's my podcast. It's my passion. It's a cause I started more than two years ago and is now the most prolific national daily baseball pod. There is another fact, so jump aboard the B.I.B. Express. Follow and listen to Baseball Isn't Boring, presented by Wasabi Hot Cloud Storage on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Heather Vale, and this is the Odyssey Las Vegas Public Affairs Show. Joining me is Scott Rosenzweig, President and CEO of Make-A-Wish Southern Nevada. Make-A-Wish creates life-changing wishes for children with critical illnesses, knowing that every step of the wish journey can help kids build the physical and emotional strength they need to fight their illness. And it's that time of year again. Their 22nd annual Walk for Wishes fundraising event is coming up soon at Town Square. Scott, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you for having me. So it seems like the organization has been around forever, but I know it hasn't. So could you give us a brief nutshell history of Make-A-Wish? Absolutely. So it all started in 1980 in Phoenix, Arizona. A kiddo, Chris Gracious, seven years old with leukemia, and his mom knew he loved everything around police officers and whatnot. And so she asked around, is there anybody who could just have a police officer drive by our house or something like that? Well, they did much better than that. As you know, when a community gets involved, they not only gave them a ride in a police car, a police helicopter, a police motorcycle, they gave him a uniform that was specially fitted for him and swore him in as a Phoenix police officer. Unfortunately, he passed four days after that and was buried in the Midwest. But because he had been sworn in, as a Phoenix Metro police officer, they sent two of their officers there to give him the same burial they would have given any fallen officer. He was buried in his uniform. And when they came back from that experience, they said, if there's a Chris out there, there's got to be other kids. And while we were originally for terminal kids, I'm pleased to say now we deal with kids who have life-threatening illnesses. 86% of our kids go on to lead extraordinary lives. And since 1980, when that first wish inspiration happen, we have now granted over 550,000 wishes across the globe because we're not only represented in the U.S., but also in 50 countries. Wow, that's incredible. All right. Now, what about our local chapter? When was Make-A-Wish Southern Nevada founded? Well, you know, Make-A-Wish Southern Nevada was Make-A-Wish Nevada at one point. We were the second chapter, but we were became Make-A-Wish Southern Nevada in 1996. And since then, we've granted over 2,600 wishes for kids right here in Southern Nevada. That's fantastic. And how exactly does Make-A-Wish make kids' wishes come true? Well, you know, we believe very strongly in being the prescription for hope. While doctors write for medication, we write the prescription for hope. We get to know each individual child, their likes, their dislikes, and all that other good stuff. And what we try and do is allow them to finally have a voice and a choice. You see, most of our kids are dealing with school and teachers make those choices. Doctors and medical stuff, that's parents and, and doctors take care of that. But a wish is solely a child's alone. And what it does is it helps a child to begin to imagine themselves outside of their medical journey, outside of chemo treatments or waiting for an organ transplant. This is solely their opportunity to imagine their life as they could or would be. So whether they're traveling to some 
great location, or they want to be a published author, create a makeup line for cancer patients, you name it, our kids have thought of it all. And our job is to fulfill that promise to get that wish to the finish line. Do kids ever have trouble figuring out what their wish should be? All the time. I'm glad you asked, Heather. You know, something that I never thought of until I got here is when we say anything in the anything kingdom, sometimes that's overwhelming for kids. And often a lot of our kids have guilt over being the sick sibling or taking so much time away from their parents and everything else. So it's really a labor of love that our volunteers do between one to up to five visits in the discovery process to discover what that wish can or should be for that child based on what they want, truly what they want. Okay. And how do you determine what they want if they're sitting there? You know what, Scott? I like this. I like that. I don't know. How do you help them? (laughs) We love when kids say that. So what we do is we bring our staff together in those cases, and we have what we call concept committee. And what that is, is based on everything we know about this kiddo, what are some concepts that we think the kid would absolutely love? So what we've found is, is that we have more fun brainstorming sometimes than kids who know exactly what they want for their wish. And while sometimes they do pick some of the wishes that we come up with or ideas that we come up with, oftentimes it's a launching pad for them to say, you know what? Hmm, I don't want that. Here's what I want. Okay. Now, what kind of feedback have you gotten from the kids who had their wishes granted about what it meant to them and how impactful it was? You know, we have kids who go on to lead extraordinary lives. And I think about Daniel, who had his wish granted in the 1990s to go to Disney World. He's now married with two kids of his own and the director of retail over at Resorts World. But he still talks about that wish trip and how much he wanted to take his own kids to Disney World because of all of the great, incredible memories he had when he went with his own family. So our kids talk about their wishes. It's not just one day in their life. The hope starts when we do the welcome call with their parents. And they get a golden ticket in the mail that tells them that they're the bearer of one wish if they can just discover what that wish might be. So our kids go on and they always talk about their wish because it really is a turning point for some of our kids. And I'll share just one story from a parent. We had a wish kid and the family was in Hawaii. And when they came back, we always check in and make sure that we did the job that we're supposed to do. And the mom said to our wish coordinator that her son turned to her while they were on a boat in Hawaii. And he said, you know what, mom, today's the first day I feel like a regular kid. Like I never had cancer. Wow. That's what Make-A-Wish does. Yeah, that's awesome. Now, have you ever had a kid ask for a wish that you just couldn't make happen? Well, we do have guidelines from our national and local as well that our board oversees. Now, look, we don't want to be part of the medical journey, right? We don't do, you know, anything around getting you to a a medical appointment or anything like that. We're strictly the prescription for hope. So we do have guidelines. We don't do cash. We don't do guns. We don't do primary modes of transportation. So there are some things that we don't do, but we can always find something to give that child the hope they so desperately need. And it's something fun. Always fun. It's got to be fun. Otherwise, it's not a wish for us, too. Yeah, okay. Now, you've got the 22nd annual Walk for Wishes coming up. What exactly is Walk for Wishes? 
Well, Walk for Wishes is our one time a year, our biggest community event where our community partners come together to throw a walk of a lifetime. And it's a fun run and walk. So we don't do bibs and we don't time you or anything like that. It's more of a social gathering. I'm so pleased to report that we had about, I don't know, 1,200 people last year. But in the past, we've had up to 2,500 people there. And it really, it's an opportunity for our wish kids and families who want to wish it forward, as we talk about. They create teams, they raise money, and they help the next generation of wish kids get their wishes, just like they got, along with everybody in the community. So you can sign up at wish.org SNV walk. You create a team, get people to walk with you. You get a free T-shirt. Come on, who doesn't want a free T-shirt? But also we have things like a petting zoo, a touch a truck. We have the SWAT team out there that lets the kids see a SWAT truck and what that's all about. So it's really our big community event every year. And we're just thrilled and honored to have Town Square host us again on Saturday, April 27th, 2024. And that Allegiant Airlines is once again our presenting sponsor. So Saturday, April 27th at town square what time does it all happen well get ready listeners because it starts at 8 a.m if you want to get there before you're more than welcome we do a little stage presentation which is always fun we'll have kim and dana wagner there they've hosted for like the last 22 years we'll have mercedes and jc for mix 94.1 we've confirmed all of them and a few special guests that you may be surprised to see but yeah it's just a great community event and we hope we see everybody in southern nevada out there, not only supporting our kids, but to have a great time with us. Okay, so the walk starts at 8 a.m. or people start registering at 8 a.m.? Start registering at 8 a.m., but you can register online today and take care of all that in advance, or you can register that morning there as well. And what time does the walk actually take off? So usually around 8.30, we try and keep the presentation no longer than a half an hour. So, you know, we'll be out there at an ungodly hour. I don't even want to tell you what time. (laughs) And so you could probably come out there around 7, 7.30 if you wanted to. You know, we'll have food trucks out there and all that other good stuff as well. But yeah, so it's usually 8 o'clock presentation starts, 8.30-ish. We start the actual runners off. Then we let the walkers go. And Honestly, you can you can hang with us as long as you want, but we do have to allow the businesses at Town Square to open up that day at 10 o'clock. So we try and get the whole fun run walk done by 10 a.m. Okay. And do people specifically sign up to take part in either the walk or the run, or can they just decide on the spur of the moment? They can decide on the spur of the moment. We'll ask all the runners to come to the front, and then we'll hold the walkers back. So you can make that decision at 8 35 or whenever we're about to shoot the gun off and begin the run walk. So whether you feel like running that day or not, that's what makes a decision. (laughs) I mean, I think we've all had those days, haven't we, Heather? Some days you feel like running, God bless. And some days you just feel like walking. (laughs) And where does the actual route go? It goes all throughout Town Square. So it's great. We have volunteers along the path with arrows showing you exactly where to go. We have water stations and all that other good stuff. But it actually takes you all the way through Town Square. So for those of you who may not have ever been to Town Square, it's a great opportunity to window shop and just see what's out there. Yeah, and it's a beautiful outdoor shopping mall center. So great place to do it. Yeah, and we usually get really good weather, although I don't want to jinx us. So uh, (laughs) I say usually. Yeah, yeah, okay. Now, what is World Wish Day? 
So World Wish Day is the day, as we talked about Chris Gracious, who got his wish granted, he got his wish granted on April 29th, 1980. And that was really the impetus and the start of all Make-A-Wish. So we've always celebrated that as World Wish Day. But I'll share a little secret with you and your listeners. We are actually blowing it out and we want to make April World Wish Month not only in honor of the first wish that inspired Make-A-Wish that got Chris Gracious, became a police officer, but for all of the people in the communities across all 58 chapters in the U.S. who support us throughout the year. So we're trying to turn April into World Wish Month. Wow, that's a great idea. Yeah, and we'll have lots of stuff throughout the month. You'll see us probably on our partner channel three a lot talking about it and some other activities that you can be involved in throughout the whole month of April. That's fantastic. And then so the walk for wishes, walk and run always happens near April 29th for World Wish Day. It didn't until about two years ago when we said, what are we doing? We should be using (laughs) World Wish Day. We should get smarter and um, do it around World Wish Day. And now it'll be the culmination of everything that we do for World Wish Month on April 27th, because it's always the Saturday. Yeah. So the last Saturday of April, basically. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. So you did mention the website, but let's let the listeners know again where they can find out more information, first of all, about Make-A-Wish Southern Nevada in general, and then specifically about the 22nd annual Walk for Wishes, especially if they want to sign up to take part in the event. So wish.org slash SNV, like Southern Nevada, that's where you go to our regular website. You'll find ways to help, ways to volunteer. You'll see all of that juicy, good information, along with some stories about some wish kids who got their wishes granted recently. So that's the website you want to go to. If you want to learn more about walk and register, you just add another slash and walk. That's at wish.org slash SNV slash walk. Okay, awesome. So wish.org slash SNV is the website for Make-A-Wish Southern Nevada, wish.org slash SNV. And if you want to take part in the 22nd annual Walk for Wishes, or if you want to find out more information about that, wish.org slash SNV slash walk. And that will be happening on Saturday, April 27th at Town Square, Las Vegas. It all gets underway at 8 a.m. Walk starts at 8.30. And that's going to be going all around Town Square. So you can take your time or you can sprint it and go as fast as you want. But basically, the point here is we're raising funds for Make-A-Wish Southern Nevada so they can continue granting wishes for all these kids with critical illnesses who deserve that prescription for hope. So once again, that website, wish.org slash SNV slash walk. And we've been speaking with Scott Rosenschweig. He's the president and CEO of Make-A-Wish Southern Nevada. Scott, it's always such a pleasure talking to you. And I want to thank you so much for being here and sharing all of this information with us. It's been fantastic. Thank you so much. Thank you, Heather. Anytime. Learning your child has cancer causes an emotional and financial crisis. Often, the best place for treatment is far from home. But with the help of the National Children's Cancer Society, children battling cancer can get to life-saving treatment, whether it's across town or across the country. To learn how we give families hope and give their children the best shot at survival, visit thenccs.org. That's T-H-E-N-C-C-S dot org. Because no family should go through childhood cancer alone. 
Only one in five people with autism are employed, despite many having the skill set and desire to work. Maybe it's because employers don't know what kind of jobs they can do. Like, what about a programmer? That's a job for someone with autism. Uh, How about a healthcare worker? Yep. That is too. People with autism can do a lot of different jobs, but often get overlooked due to outdated stigmas. Introducing WIN by Autism Speaks. We help businesses lead the way in inclusive hiring. What about a ranch hand? To learn more, go to autismspeaks.org slash WIN. I'm Heather Vale, and you're listening to the Odyssey Las Vegas Public Affairs Show. Joining me is Emmett Gates, producer, director, and narrator of the film Across the Tracks, a Las Vegas West Side Story. The documentary first debuted during the Sundance Film Festival, and it explores the unique role Las Vegas played in America's Black history. Emmett, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you for having me. So what prompted you to make this documentary, Across the Tracks, a Las Vegas West Side Story? Well, you know, I grew up in Vegas, and it had occurred to me that although there's been, you know, there have been some documentaries Mostly they focus on the Moulin Rouge and they kind of just stop there. They'll focus on Sammy Davis Jr. But, you know, I I didn't feel like anyone had really took a deep dive into the, you know, the people, you know, the west side of Las Vegas. And so that that's really what motivated me to do this. Okay, so what is the story beyond the Moulin Rouge being the first integrated casino hotel and Sammy Davis Jr., obviously a very popular performer here back in the day? But give us a high-level overview. Why were those things so important? And what's so important beyond those that really had an impact on Black history? Well, you know, that there was a time and, and you know, the, the story is not unique from other American cities. Every city has a part of town where at one time black people were kind of confined to what makes ours unique is it is Las Vegas, one of the most famous cities on the planet. And the neighborhood now called the historic West Side. Um, at one time, again, that's where if you were black and you lived in Vegas, you you kind of had to be there. But Sammy Davis Jr., Nat King Cole, Pearl Bailey, you know, these people, when they would perform on the strip, they would also have to return to those same neighborhoods. So it, it was pretty common for black people who lived there at the time to see Nat King Cole walking down the street or or see Pearl Bailey, you know, at the, at the local cafe, you know, so. Uh, you know, we just, we just kind of wanted to, you know, to talk to some of the people who grew up there, who experienced some of these things. And yeah. Okay. Who did you interview for the film? Oh, man, we, we interviewed a lot. Uh, we tried to get it, you know, because, you know, the story starts in 1870, right? And then, mm-hmm. you know, 1905, of course, Las Vegas is established and we come all the way up till now. So we, we've got people who have lived there in the 30s, the late 30s, uh, early 40s, mid 40s, to the 50s, 60s, all the way up to now. So there's quite a bit. There's a quite a bit of people <laughs> just from different eras. You have to pick an era and I'll tell you who we talked to from that era. <laughs> okay. Now, how did you track down the various celebrities, residents, politicians, and convince them to take part? You know, just word of mouth, social media, of course, you know, be surprised who would say yes. And, you know, so it was kind of one of those things where somebody knew someone who knew how to get to someone we needed to talk to. And of course, having the backing of the Las Vegas Centennial Commission was very helpful as well. 
Yeah. Okay. Now, you mentioned that this type of segregation was quite common at one time, but it seems crazy in today's world to even think about the fact that headliners in the main casinos on the strip who were black could perform and bring in customers and everyone loved the show. And yet those performers weren't even allowed to stay there. They had to go back to this designated neighborhood. So even though it seems crazy today, what did people think about the whole thing when it was happening? Did they think it was crazy back then too? Well, first of all, I think it's important to point out that Vegas wasn't always like that. When you go back to 1905, where you had the McWilliamstown site, which is now the historic West Side, and then you had the Clarktown site, which is now downtown, people lived together regardless of what their race was. Now, of course, they would be segregated because, you know, people kind of, you know, congregate towards their own. But black people owned businesses in the downtown area. They owned property there. And there wasn't a big problem until Hoover Dam. Once Hoover Dam and during the Great Depression, where people were looking for work, a lot of the people that came here seeking those jobs had come from the South. And so they had those attitudes and those prejudices and they brought them with them here. And that's really when we start to see the hardened Jim Crow style responses. Okay. And then how did the rules eventually change and the pendulum swing in the other direction to allow integration to happen? That happens in 1960 with the what's now known as the Moulin Rouge Agreement, where the NAACP pretty much gave the city fathers and the casino owners an ultimatum. Either you will open the resort sector and the jobs up to, you know, people of color, or we will march through downtown and through the Las Vegas Strip. And it pretty much happened that way. You know, by then we had had, you know, more progressive government. Uh, we had Grant Sawyer. We had Orrin Gregson as the mayor. And so, you know, th these people were a little bit more open to the ideas and more helpful in making those things happen. Okay. And then what happened to the West Side after that? Not much. I mean, you know, it was just people could leave now. You know, people could live wherever they wanted in the city. They could get, you know, jobs. And it's still there. Of course, there was some consequences economically, you know, because when you, when you kind of have to be somewhere, you, you have no choice but to spend your money there and to, you know, be there. So it, it did have those consequences where a lot of the businesses left, like streets like Jackson Avenue, which was known as the Black Strip, you know, those businesses started to suffer because people had more options. Yeah. And, you know, I think it's important to point out something that I learned from watching the film, which I didn't realize, was that it was a thriving entertainment district on its own. You called it the Black Strip. I've heard it called the West Side Strip now. But it was like its very own strip. It was like the Las Vegas Strip, but over here and different clubs and different things going. But it was happening. Well, yeah. I mean, you have all the, you know, the best entertainers who would come here to perform on the strip. They would naturally end up on the West Side. So they would end up jamming, you know, having jam sessions right there on Jackson Avenue. So, yeah, that's how it was. Now, what did you personally learn about Las Vegas history during the production of this film that you didn't know before? Oh, man, so much, <laughs> you know, <laughs> just, you know, talking to the people who were there, 
Well, first of all, I did not know that uh, the city was so integrated so early. You know, I didn't know that the Jim Crow thing didn't happen until later, you know, because, you know, that was a different time. And, and I think it's important for people to understand that the black people that were migrating here, they were coming from the South. And down south, you know, we, we all know what was happening there with the terrorism from groups like the Ku Klux Klan and stuff like that. So even the racism that they experienced here was mild in comparison to what they had come from. Wow. Okay. So if people want to watch a screening of the film Across the Tracks, A Las Vegas West Side Story, where can they do that? We are opening on March 6th at 6 p.m. at Galaxy Theaters at the Boulevard Mall. Okay, cool. And what if people want to find out more about the film or watch some of the clips and trailers and that kind of thing? If they go to Slickshin.com, that's S-L-I-C-K-T-I-O-N.com, they'll be able to learn more about the project there. You can also purchase your tickets there as well. Cool. So once again, the website, Slickshin.com, S-L-I-C-K-T-I-O-N.com. That's Emmett's production company, Slickshin.com. You can find out more about the film, Across the Tracks, A Las Vegas West Side Story. You can watch clips there. You can read about the production. You can see some of the people that were in the film. And you can also buy tickets to the public screening, which is happening next Wednesday, March 6th. 6 p.m. at the Galaxy Theater at Boulevard Mall, March 6, 6 p.m. at Galaxy Theater, Boulevard Mall. And again, you can get the tickets and the information, slickshin.com, S-L-I-C-K-T-I-O-N.com. And we've been speaking with Emmett Gates. He's the producer, director, and narrator of the film Across the Tracks, a Las Vegas West Side Story fascinating story and well done production. I thoroughly enjoyed it myself. So Emmett, I want to thank you so much for being here, letting us know more about this important part of Las Vegas history and making a film that people can learn about it while enjoying themselves. So I really appreciate what you did and I appreciate you being here sharing it with us. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. As Americans, we celebrate all the things that make us different. So what is the thing that connects us? The thing that makes us Americans? It's simple. It's our shared belief that we are Americans. We the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity do ordain and establish this Constitution for the United States of America. That belief that we each can be who we are and live the life we dream, in harmony with one another, in our system written in the words of the Constitution. Know your Constitution. It's who you are. It's who we are. Unity. It's an American thing. From AmericanThing.org. I'm Heather Vale, and you're listening to the Odyssey Las Vegas Public Affairs Show. Joining me is Nazanin Ash, CEO of Welcome.us, and Leslie Sperry, lead sponsor of the Beacon Heights Welcoming Group. Welcome.us leads public engagement for the Welcome Corps, which was launched last year by the State Department to create new ways for Americans to play a direct role in resettling refugees. Thank you both so much for being here today. Thanks for having us, Heather. We're happy to do this. 
So what exactly is the Welcome Corps? The Welcome Corps is the program that sits at the intersection of refugee crises and what we hear so often from American communities about what they wish they could do about it. It offers an opportunity for Americans to serve as a bridge to safety for refugees who need a pathway to safety and opportunity in the United States. And what I'm really excited to share with your listeners is you know, the program's only a year old, and already 15,000 sponsors, people like Leslie, have stepped forward with their communities to help sponsor over 7,000 refugees to come to safety here in the United States. Wow, that's amazing. Okay, so Leslie, what's the Beacon Heights Welcoming Group? We started our journey about a year ago with the thought that we wanted to sponsor a refugee family. Our church has a long history of sponsoring refugees. So we knew that there were a lot of refugees sitting around in the world, and many of them have been in camps for a long time, and we wanted to do something about them. And Welcome Corps, we had heard something about it. We looked more at the information they had. And we were really impressed by the process, and we started that. Okay, so what are the situations where a refugee would need a sponsor in order to move forward with their life here in the U.S.? Well, the Department of State, the U.S. government overall, has had a refugee resettlement program in place for over 40 years. And that refugee resettlement program works to find some of the most vulnerable refugees who, as Leslie has described, are living their lives in limbo and refugee camps and often have no hope of being able to return to their home country because conflicts are ongoing or because they're part of a persecuted group that would remain in danger if they were to return. So they're refugees who need a permanent solution. Um, they need an opportunity to be resettled in another country where they can rebuild their own lives. And as I said, that program's been in place now for over 40 years. But what the Welcome Corps is doing differently is expanding our national capacity to welcome by inviting American communities to participate as the welcomers. And what that means is, you know, we're able to do so much more as a country than what the U.S. government's refugee resettlement system was able to do alone when it was limited to only what our government programs and our government funding and our government system could provide. So while the State Department works to find families who, as I said, you know, need that permanent opportunity to be resettled, and they provide security and the background checks of those families, and they also do the security and background checks of sponsors to make sure it's a safe experience for everyone. It's the sponsors who, as Leslie was describing, raise money, welcome families at the airport, help them find housing, help them connect to English language classes, enroll kids to school, and find employment. Okay, what are some of the outcomes you've seen when refugees have been resettled in local communities with the support of American sponsors like Leslie? Oh, I want to let Leslie come in on this too because she's been able to see up close what it's been like for Meshach and his family um, as they've been resettled as part of Leslie's community. But I think what I say at the outset is 
for anyone who's considering sponsorship, you know, know that you know everything you need to know about how to be a sponsor. So what we find with refugees who are resettled through this program is the fact that they're coming in to the warm embrace of a new community of friends is so important to their outcome. You know, refugees all need housing. They need to be able to connect to jobs. They need all the physical things because they've left all the physical things behind. But they've also left behind, you know, their friends and their family and their social network and everything they knew. And so having a new friend and guide and community when you're navigating a new country and a new culture and new norms is often the most important part of feeling like you belong and feeling inspired about your journey as a new American. So it's been really remarkable. But Leslie, I know you have so much to offer from the direct experience you've had with the Shackenham family. Yes, I mean, this family has become family to us, all of us who've been working with him, and also our larger community. One of the things starting out, we knew that we needed to raise $10,000, and that seemed like an enormous amount of money. In the end, we raised almost $17,000 in support of this family, and it was easy. Our community has been just very, very generous. They're engaged with supporting the refugee family. In addition, we've done some fun things with them and seen the joy. We went to the pumpkin patch at Halloween. They've never done that. They were up to their elbows in pumpkin guts and seeds. I heard a story from a sponsor, Leslie, and it's a perfect example of why it's such a different experience to have a sponsor. Because the sponsor was telling me about how the refugee family, they sponsored, you know, the husband and the family came to the sponsor and said, I need to understand pumpkins because it seems like from one day to the next, everything became about pumpkins. <laughs> and, and the question to the sponsor was, what do I need to know about pumpkins to be successful as an American? <laughs> <laughs> and that was the way that they had a conversation about Halloween and fall traditions in the United States. And it's a perfect example of why, you know, having a sponsor, having a friend and a guide in the new community makes such a difference. Yeah, that's amazing. Okay. So who can participate as a sponsor in the Welcome Corps program? And what are the criteria? Anyone who's legally resident in the United States can do it. Yes, Leslie, talk about your group and what your qualifications were. Kindness and generosity and compassion, that's what I would say. <laughs> right. Well, our, our group consisted of a nurse, a doctor, a social worker that worked in a, a women's shelter, a linguist who teaches English as a second language. Those were all very useful skills. And then there's my husband and I, and we're just old tech workers that are retired. So, <laughs> you know, we have long talked about the African proverb, it takes a village. Well, it really does take a village to resettle a family. But for us, it has just worked out really well. It's brought our group closer together. We know each other better. The other thing we found is that there's a whole community of refugees in Fort Wayne that we were not aware of. 
from the Democratic Republic of Congo. They came 20 years ago, and they have been so helpful to us and the family and have just sort of become part of our group, and that's been a real blessing. There's a cycling team that came together to sponsor a group. There's book clubs. There's rotary clubs. There's all kinds of Americans that have stepped forward to do this, you know, diaspora populations, you know, people who have been able to experience what America has to offer um, as new Americans in previous generations and now want to pay it forward in the way that Leslie's describing with the group of, you know, Congolese Americans who came, you know, 20 years ago who, you know, have now made this connection with Leslie's group to help Mishak and his family have a good experience here. So it's really remarkable how Americans of all backgrounds and now across over 30 states have stepped up to serve as sponsors. And I think what inspires us so much is what you hear Leslie describing about how it's made such a difference to the sponsors themselves and how it's bringing communities together around this really amazing purpose of getting new Americans started on their new lives. Yeah, that's fantastic. So where can listeners go if they want to get more information or even sign up to become a Welcome Corps sponsor? We encourage everyone to go to welcomecore.org to learn more. You'll find everything you need to get started as a sponsor. And there are people and organizations and resources to help guide you on every step of your journey that you can get started at welcomecore.org. Okay, awesome. So welcomecore.org is the website to go to welcomecore, that's C-O-R-P-S, welcomecore.org. And you can find out more information about becoming a Welcome Core sponsor. The whole program is laid out there, welcomecore.org. And we've been speaking with Nazanine Ash. She's the CEO of Welcome.us. And also Leslie Sperry, lead sponsor of the Beacon Heights Welcoming Group, who have sponsored refugees through the program. And I want to thank you both so much for being here and sharing your experiences with the program and what this is doing for new Americans across the country. So I really appreciate both your time. Thank you so much. Thank you for the opportunity. Are you looking for more in this world? Are you ready for something bigger? Then we are looking for you. The big hearted, the bold, the messy and the gutsy, the teachers, the growers, the builders, the skilled, the sharers, the change makers. We need you. We are the Peace Corps. In more than 60 countries, we go all in and all out. We are volunteers, partners, communities, working together, living together, bringing our experience, passion, and joy to building a better world together. From tackling climate change in Mexico to keeping kids healthy in Kenya, from sustainable farming in the Philippines to education in Kosovo, We learn more, give more, share freely, and serve boldly. Are you ready to tackle the tough stuff? To go the distance to make a difference? Then we have a place where you belong. Join us at PeaceCorps.gov. You're listening to the Odyssey Las Vegas Public Affairs Show. I'm Heather Vale, and I'm speaking with Lori Woodley, founder and CEO of All It Takes. 
After 25 years as a school counselor focusing on experiential learning, parenting support, peer programs, and emotional intelligence, Lori now spends her time writing and speaking on emotional intelligence issues, parenting dilemmas, and the transformational work created by experiential education. Lori, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you, Heather, for having me. So first of all, what exactly is All It Takes? We are a nonprofit organization that focuses on equipping our youth and all those adults who serve them with the emotional intelligence skills to navigate life through the hard and easy times with resiliency and joy. And then also to be in, you know, community and support, you know, their environment. Okay, that's awesome. Now, what is a trusted space meeting the moment? A Trusted Space Meeting the Moment is a film series. We call it a docu-training series. So it's a film series of short documentaries in the education field with voices of students and teachers and administrators and experts speaking to really the crisis that we're seeing in education right now. And there's a lot of them. Teachers, great teachers are quitting at record numbers. Students have chronic absentee numbers at escalating numbers. Our mental health issues are escalating. And the education system, you know, is a pivotal part of bringing all of this back together in healthy ways. And Trusted Space meets educators where they are to be able to support both themselves and the students that they serve and bring voices from the trenches so that it's relatable. Okay. What inspired you to create this docu-training series? Originally in 2020, I received a text from a local school district that said, please create a film on trauma. Our teachers can't afford workshops and they'll never understand what's coming on the other side of this pandemic if they don't get the training. That was started the whole thing. And then we did that first film in 2020 and it's full of masks and Zoom interviews and people don't want to watch that anymore, right? Yeah. <laughs> and so we were funded by Cal Hope Schools in California to make really the same information, but in more relatable times, right? So this was all shot last May. We are back in school. We're with each other, but we're still not thriving. Okay. Now, how does a trusted space specifically address the educational challenges that are facing students and teachers? The first thing we do is we go right at all of the hardest questions. Like, you know, what do we do with students who are throwing things across classrooms and spitting at teachers and saying horrible things? Like we don't shy away from what our teachers and our students are experiencing. We have students saying, you know, a condescending comment from a teacher makes me never want to ask a question again. You know, we have teachers saying, I don't know how to reach kids anymore. And so we make it relatable by meeting them where they are. And then we move through the science of what's really happening in our brains, like when we go isolating or when we pop off or, and then we go into tactics, like real equipped tools that say, hey, if you walk into a classroom and your class is kind of going sideways, here's a couple communication tips that you can shift little ways of your being to make a big difference in impact with the kids or with your staff. Okay. Now you mentioned that it was originally to address trauma. What are some of the best ways to combat trauma and stress that we all experience on a day-to-day -day basis? 
the number one thing is trusted relationships. All the research points to it. We need to have relationships where when we come into a room and we're agitated or we're feeling really forlorn, we know that somebody's got our back. And one of the things that we try to address through the experiential learning that we do is that we can't just tell kids, hey, you're safe. Hey, I care about you. We have to show them. You know, people have to feel safe, not just be told they're safe. And when I say safe, I think heart safe, obviously physical safe too. But trauma is, it's not written the same for everybody. Different events create trauma for different people. And we have to just be in relationships where when I walk in a room, I know I can be okay to not be okay. I'm believed in no matter what goes on, I'm still going to be cared for. And that's where we start to see healing and resiliency and learning happen naturally. Now, you did talk about the educational crisis. So what do you envision for the future where we can actually take that crisis and transform it into resilience, into healing among students, educators, parents? I have great hope that our education system will make some big shifts that need to be made. And the biggest one is that while we don't in any way reduce high expectations for teaching and learning, but that we meet that halfway with also creating environments of fun and engagement and purpose and inclusion where everybody, whoever you are, walks through the room and you know that you're okay to be there and that you can learn. And if you have a bad day, it's okay. And it's not held against you. The education system has long been, you know, sage on stage, stand at the front of the room. I teach, you listen, we go home, we do it again the next day. And, you know, with all of the technology and access that our kids have today, they can see that there are different ways of learning that are engaging and fun. And, you know, our teenagers today are hypocrisy radars, right? They're like, you have to do for me what you say I should do for others. <laughs> and, and if you want me to sit to listen to you yell at us all day long and bark at us and not really want to be in the classroom and think we don't care about that, you're wrong. And I think that, you know, we have to come along to what our kids need today not keep fighting to stay with what yesterday was. Okay, awesome. So besides just watching the A Trusted Space training documentaries with a bowl of popcorn passively, what are some of the key takeaways, tools, and strategies, action items that viewers can learn and do? So a couple that, you know, are really right off the top of my head, a lot of this is conversation and communication tools. So just think about the way that we talk with each other. And I, I say each other because it could be to a classroom of kids, but it could be to your staff in a staff meeting. When you walk in and you're in a bad mood and your face tells everybody you're in a bad mood and you're, you know, kind of your gruff walk or your passive walk says you're not in a good space. Instead of just being that outwardly like that, if we just looked at the room and said, you know, this has not been my best morning and I could really use a little extra patience today. Have you ever had that morning or you just need people to be a little extra patient because your morning wasn't so great? And if we can shift from, hey, stop talking, get to work to, hey, my morning's been tough. Could I ask you for some patience? 
And has anyone else had that ever? Like the difference in reaction to us as a human being is significant. So the tools, like the, the film series and the, you know, the handouts and the activities are filled with little communication tips like that. They're also filled with follow along, breathe with me, a breathing technique. They're filled with the science of the chemistry of what's happening with our brain when we don't sleep or we go to sleep with our phone in our hand because we've fallen asleep to the screen, right? And I think for kids and adults, when we understand in layman terms, like an everyday human like I am, what a scientist says about what's happening and how I can do something about it so I can feel better, and that they believe in us, that we're actually capable of that, I think it changes everything. That's my experience over 30 years in education. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. Now, who's the target audience for the docu-series? It's really made originally for educators. We call it the education ecosystem. So if it's a bus driver, if it's, you know, cafeteria worker, teacher, counselor, but then also for every film, there's a student version. So for, I'd say, middle school, five, fifth, sixth grade, all the way up, there's a film where educators can sit and watch these with the parents or the kids and say, hey, let's talk about this. When you watch what this is, what's going on in your brain, and then you think about the last time you threw your, you know, temper tantrum, I like to even call adults, we all have them too, right? Adult temper <laughs> tantrums. You know, when we actually go, oh, my brain was hijacked. Okay. Oh, and there's tools I can do to stop that. Okay. Right. So it's education, but anyone who serves kids, because if you're a soccer coach after school, You've got kids popping off in soccer or falling apart crying because they didn't get their way, you know, <laughs> and we have to really help them, you know, build some resiliency, not some, a lot, a lot, you know, COVID showed us that we have a lot of people incapable of moving through challenging times in healthy ways. And I think if we're a parent, a caregiver, <laughs> a teacher, a coach, we should be watching some of this, you know, then we should be making little shifts to make a bigger difference. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Okay. So where can listeners, whether educators, coaches, parents, their kids go if they want to watch the series and download the accompanying guides and other tools that you were talking about? Everything is free at atrustedspace.org. All right. Perfect. So atrustedspace.org. Uh, trustedspace.org is the website to go to. You can watch the docu-training series, A Trusted Space, Meeting the Moment. There's also tools to download, various guides. You just have to register. It's all free, atrustedspace.org. And we've been speaking with Lori Woodley. She's the founder and CEO of All It Takes, which created a trusted space meeting the moment, the docu-training series. And Laurie, I want to thank you so much for making us aware of these tools and resources and some great topics that you've talked about today and you know how a little bit of time and a little bit of education can make such a big difference in the future of our kids and their ability to have emotional intelligence and resilience. So I really appreciate you being here sharing with us. Thank you so much. Thank you, Heather, and have a great day. I'm Tumani. When I was younger, I may have did some stupid things. I committed some crimes, I even got shot, but I'm not a criminal. 
That's right, I'm Jamal. I work for Youth Advocate Programs, yeah. I was Tamani's advocate, helping him stay out of jail, stay in the neighborhood, get a job, and work hard to see a better future for himself. If you have a change of mindset, you can have a change of action. As a little kid, I experienced trauma and I acted out. Made some mistakes, but I'm not a mistake. No, she's a good student and a great kid. As Jalen's YAP advocate, I'm always here for her. With the Youth Advocate Programs, I was able to connect with Jalen. YAP is a community-based alternative to youth incarceration, congregate placement, and neighborhood violence. After completing our program, 86% of participants were arrest-free. YAP works. And now, I'm a YAP advocate, helping kids like me find a better way. Youth Advocate Programs. Others talk social change. We make it happen. Learn how at yapinc.org. I'm Heather Vale with the Odyssey Las Vegas Public Affairs Show, and this is your community events calendar for nonprofit initiatives and charity events around the valley. Monday's Dark with Mark Chinook is a bi-monthly musical fundraising party at The Space, with each event raising $10,000 for a specific charity in 90 minutes. Upcoming shows include this Monday, March 4th at 8 p.m., benefiting Living Grace Homes, and Monday, March 18th at 8 p.m., benefiting the Collaboration Center. Get tickets or find out more details at mondaysdark.com. That's mondaysdark.com. After debuting at the Sundance Film Festival, the new documentary Across the Tracks, a Las Vegas West Side Story, is being shown in a public screening next Wednesday, March 6th at 6 p.m. in the Galaxy Theater at Boulevard Mall. Find out more info or get your tickets at the production company website, slickshon.com. S-L-I-C-K-T-I-O-N dot com, Slickshon dot com. The Nevada State Contractors Board is hosting the fourth annual Hammers and Hope event next Friday, March 8th from 10 a.m. to 1 p.m. at the College of Southern Nevada's Whitley Lounge, East Cheyenne Avenue. Held during National Women in Construction Week, this free event is geared towards highlighting construction industry career opportunities for women. It features panel discussions, mentorship opportunities, and a career fair. Find out more details at nscb.nv.gov. That stands for Nevada State Contractors Board, nscb.nv.gov. Bunnies Matter Rescue is holding their fourth annual Spring Fling on Saturday, March 16th from 10 a.m. to 3 p.m. at Floyd Lamb Park. Visit with the bunnies at the Bunny Barn and have a fun-filled family day with games, goodies, and gifts. Volunteers are also needed for several shifts. Find out more at bunniesmatter.org or fill out a volunteer application at bunniesmatter.org slash volunteers. That's bunniesmatter.org slash volunteers. The Junior League of Las Vegas is hosting the Peace Love Las Vegas 5K Charity Race on Saturday, March 23rd at 9 a.m. at Floyd Lamb Park. Find out more or register to participate at jllv.org slash 5K. That stands for Junior League Las Vegas, jllv.org slash 5K. The 6th Annual Walk for Friendship Las Vegas Fundraiser Walk and Community Carnival is happening on Sunday, April 7th with check-in at 10 a.m., walk at 11 a.m., and carnival at noon at Las Vegas Sports Park, 1400 North Rampart. 
support the Friendship Circle's efforts to provide social and recreational opportunities for children and young adults with disabilities. Find out more or register at walkforfriendshiplv.com. That's the number for walkforfriendshiplv.com. Make-A-Wish Southern Nevada is holding their 22nd annual Walk for Wishes fundraising event on World Wish Day, Saturday, April 27th, with 8 a.m. registration and the walk and run starting at 8.30 a.m. at Town Square, Las Vegas. Make-A-Wish chapters and affiliates across the globe come together each year to celebrate World Wish Day, the anniversary of the wish that inspired the founding of Make-A-Wish back in 1980. You can join in the celebration of more than 550,000 wishes that have already been granted while raising funds for future wishes. Sign up or find out more information at wish.org slash snv slash walk. That's wish.org slash snv slash walk. And Aid for AIDS of Nevada, or AFAN, is hosting the 34th annual AIDS Walk Las Vegas on Sunday, April 28th at 9 a.m. at Las Vegas Ballpark, 1650 South Pavilion Center Drive. This year, AFAN celebrates 40 years of providing HIV-AIDS services to the community, and the walk is in partnership with Clark County's Love, Live, Undetectable equals Untransmittable campaign. Penn and Teller return as Grand Marshals for the 23rd consecutive year, and dogs are welcome with a signed pet waiver. Register for the event or find out more at afanlv.org. That's A-F-A-N, Aid for AIDS of Nevada, afanlv.org. season is heating up. Odyssey has you covered with the most entertaining coverage of your team. Stay locked in and in the know with the local voices you trust as they bring you unfiltered takes, recap games, react to the latest team news, and talk to callers. Listen to your favorite shows for free on the Odyssey app, odyssey.com, your smart speaker, or in the car with Android Auto or Apple CarPlay. 